ISU has some real rocket scientists. Students learn that it's, it's complex because it, it takes a lot of people to land a, a rocket vertically. Hear about Redbirds in space and how they beat Big Ten competitors in a rocket landing competition. That's coming up on WGLT's Sound Ideas. Good afternoon, I'm John Norton. Also on the show, you'll hear from Illinois Wesleyan alum T.J. Newman. Her writing career has taken off, and her new book has sparked a Hollywood bidding war for the movie rights. Zoom calls with Nicole Kidman, and then hearing things like, you know, Steven Spielberg had my book and was reading it. Plus, the Illinois Symphony Orchestra presents an epic ending at ISU tomorrow. I think this program is a wonderful tribute to what American music is. Those stories follow a Bloomington Normal News update, which is just ahead. This is WGLT Sound Ideas on 89.1 FM and WGLT.org, part of the NPR network. Support for WGLT comes from Bloomington Normal Audiology. May is Better Hearing and Speech Month, and it's a time for raising awareness about communication disorders and their solutions. The hurdles and uncertainty of the past several years have focused more attention on the importance of hearing health care. And so the month of May offers a chance to build strong foundations through better hearing. More info at bnaudiology.com. From the campus of Illinois State University in Normal, this is WGLT's news magazine, Sound Ideas. Good afternoon, I'm John Norton. Illinois State University has won a Defense Department-sponsored rocket competition for the second straight time. Last month, ISU students topped the University of Illinois and Purdue University in the Vertical Landing Rocket Competition. That's by landing closest to the target and surviving the landing. The U of I Laboratory for Advanced Space Systems hosted the competition in Rantoul. Vertical rocket landings are the direction the space industry is moving rather than water landings. Daniel Freeberg is a graduate student who led the team and heads the student organization Redbirds in Space. In this chat with WGLT's Charlie Schlenker, Freeberg says last year when they won it, the weather was cold. This year, it was nice, and it makes a huge difference. The weather complicates landing quite a bit. Last year it was 35 degrees, and what that did was that delayed the rocket ignition. And when the rockets are dropped from 20 meters from a drone, and usually the drop time is two to three, between two and three seconds. So a delay of the ignition of the motor, even by two or three tenths of a second, really affects the landing. Uh, this year we had uh, good conditions, but again, the motors were the ignition times were between 0.3 seconds and 0.7. So we were kind of left to guess on that 0.4 seconds of when exactly we wanted our, our engine to ignite so that we could land the rocket softly. How much difference does four tenths of a second make if you go back to high school and do the yeah, per second the math, per second? It's like, I think 9.3 meters per second is the average gravity, rate of gravity. So, you know, two tenths of a second is you know almost two meters. That that affects whether it lands nicely or not. Really, two meters is a, is a big difference. For a given value of soft landing, how soft are the landings? We've had some good landings, but we've also had some not so good landings. It's difficult to land it vertically because one, the wind affects it, and the engines only ignite for I think it's 0.8 seconds. It's difficult, but several teams have gotten their rockets to land on their legs. It's just that they bounce a little bit once they hit kind of the, the grassy landing. What would correct that? A gyroscope or, or some other stabilizing uh, mechanism? Probably just a, a 
more powerful motor. If we could get 1.5 seconds on the ignition time, that would help a lot. You run simulation software ahead of this. Uh, what does that help you learn and prepare for? That helps us prepare for what the exact time we want to ignite the rocket. It also helps us try to land it vertically because we'll do some simulations and, and the rocket will land at a, like a 30 degree angle. We can also put in some variables such as wind speed to see how that's going to affect our rocket. How much difference does that wind make? When the drone picks it up and takes it up to 20 meters, when the rocket's just hanging from a drone up there, the wind is, is swaying the drone and the rocket a little bit. The drone operators are really trying to get it to be steady and then trying to release it in the, if it is swinging a little bit in the middle of the swing so that it, then it would just drop vertically. So it sounds like there are a lot of finicky little details that are really important. We can plan well for everything and there are a lot of variables that we cannot control. It's like if you would just try to scale up a model rocket to an actual rocket, you, students learn that it's, it's complex because it, it takes a lot of people to land a rocket vertically. There's a lot of sciences behind it, not only aerospace engineering, but a lot of computer science, too. So unpack that. Well, a lot of people think of rocket science as aerospace engineering. And then we have an avionics bay inside of that, which has a Wi-Fi connection, an accelerometer. It has four electronical boards just inside a small little rocket. And what we have to do then do is we ran simulation software to determine what variables we want to put into our rockets, when we want to ignite when we want to I'm call it gimbling the engine, moving it from left to right or east to west or north to south to try to get our rocket to land vertically. There's a lot involved in it. Daniel Freeberg is the ISU rocket team leader and head of Redbirds in Space. He spoke with WGLT's Charlie Schlenker. Next week on Sound Ideas, back for the first time since he took an Amtrak train two years ago, Democratic Congressman Eric Sorensen dropped by Normal and Bloomington for walking tours with each mayor. What did the Twin Cities mayors ask of the new congressman? Well, you'll have to wait till Monday. It's on Sound Ideas then. I'm John Norton. Thank you for listening today. Illinois Wesleyan University alum T.J. Newman spent 10 years working as a flight attendant. Now, her decade in the sky has helped her launch a successful career as a novelist. Newman's debut novel is called Falling. It was a success, and her much-anticipated follow-up, Drowning, will be published May 30th by Simon & Schuster. Both thrillers are set on, well, airplanes. Both have an option to become movies. In this interview with WGLT's Ryan Denham, Newman talks about her writing career taking off, starting with the wild bidding war for the movie rights to Drowning that ultimately went to Warner Brothers. Surreal and insane in a way that I am still trying to comprehend what happened because it was over the course of, I think, six days total um, in which I didn't leave my house. I just stayed in my house and was on the phone and answering emails and on Zooms, and it was chaos in the best of ways and and found me in moments being on zoom calls with nicole kidman and then hearing things like you know steven spielberg had my book and was reading it and would be having a conversation with my agent the next morning like how do you make sense of something like that, an experience like that? It was it was insane. Ultimately, you, you will be letting someone else play with your creation in some form down the road. What does that feel like after spending so much time on it? And that week of negotiations when we were, you know, figuring out what studio it would ultimately land with was a fascinating 
process in that, you know, I've got these, these creative powerhouses who are pitching to me ideas of what they would do the story. And it blew my mind to see the different ways that a story could be told. So I'm actually the kind of author who would really love to see what somebody else would do with, with a story because that's their medium. You know, that's what their background is in. That's what they, they know. And, and it would, it would be incredible just to see how they would interpret it. Let's talk about the the book uh, itself. Um, one of the reasons why, for me at least, that it was so scary is my sense is that, that you really know the physical space of an airplane, an aircraft so well. Can you maybe talk about an example from the book where you feel like your, your sort of intimate knowledge of the physical space and capabilities of an aircraft and how it reacts and how it behaves and how people on it behave, how that kind of, how you use that to evoke what you wanted to evoke? I was a flight attendant for 10 years. Um, that's, that's the world that I know backwards and forwards. And I think that that is the part of both my books now that has responded, the readers have responded really well to is that it's the details, right? It's the tiny little details of being on a plane every single day for 10 years. Like I was like, you get to know a space. I know where that equipment is located, but I don't just know it. You can look at, you know, the, the, a chart and know where something's located. What you don't know is that you have to stand on the seat and flip this latch and pull this out. And the Velcro sounds like this. And sometimes it sticks. And sometimes it like those little details you only get if you've been in an environment for a long time, we're all passengers, we're all on planes all the time, but we don't have that backstage access, you know, and it's been really fun to kind of, you know, let the rope down and let people come back and be like, Hey, you want you want to know what the flight attendants talk about in the galley? You want to know what what it's what it's like to be a crew member? This is here's kind of a, a look at what it's like. I read that that you started writing Falling, your first book, when you were still working as a flight attendant. Uh, how did you do that? How did you find time to do that? I found time by doing that to to do that by working red eyes. I'm a night owl naturally, and so. I would work red eyes from Los Angeles to New York. That was my favorite route that I did constantly. Um, and I'd, you know, put the passengers to sleep and I'd get to work. I would work by hand, writing by hand in the forward galley. Um, and that's where I had the idea for falling. My first book was standing in the forward galley uh, during a flight, during a red eye. Also, where I had the uh, idea for drowning, so I'm thinking I might need to like just start taking flights of red eyes as passengers, so that I can keep putting myself on red eyes to keep having uh, good ideas. What do you remember most about your time at Illinois Wesleyan? I loved the four years that I spent in Bloomington Normal at Illinois Wesleyan. I am a native of Phoenix, Arizona. It was totally different. The The people in the community are amazing. It was a, a small town feel, which I loved coming from Phoenix, which is a huge city. I just loved it. It was the perfect environment to really sort of discover my young adulthood and, and what I was and what I wanted to be. And without what I the education that I got at Illinois Wesleyan. And um, I know I wouldn't be here. That's, that's it. That's what it boils down to. I know that I would not be here without that, the education that I got at Illinois Wesleyan. And even though my degree was in musical theater, it was not in uh, English. 
I put that musical theater degree to use every single day. That's Illinois Wesleyan alum, former flight attendant, and now accomplished author, T.J. Newman, speaking with WGLT's Ryan Denham. Newman says her first book, Falling, was rejected more than 40 times by agents before it debuted at number two on the New York Times bestseller list. Newman's new book, Drowning, will be published May 30th. Her book tour includes a stop at Exile in Bookville in Chicago on June 6th. This is Sound Ideas on 89.1 WGLT. The Illinois Symphony Orchestra returns to Illinois State University tomorrow for a performance at the Center for Performing Arts. Guest conductor Andrew June Choi is back at the podium with cellist Joshua Roman visiting to play Dvorak's concerto. Choi and ISU assistant conductor Jacobson Woolen stop by WGLT ahead of the orchestra's season finale called Epic Ending. As the orchestra's 30th anniversary season draws to a close, Woolen says the program is an appropriately festive tribute to this Midwestern orchestra. I think this program is a wonderful tribute to what American music is. So you have uh, the Bartok Concerto for Orchestra, which was written in the United States and right. incorporates his research into Hungarian folk music and has both sort of simple, naive folk tunes combined with these unbelievably complicated mathematical mm-hmm. symmetries and fractals and gold means. And, um, and then you have the Dvorak, which incorporates folk tunes and, and rhythms that he absorbed during his time in the United States. You have the Michael Torkey, which is a tribute to the Olympics of, of people right. coming from all corners of the world here and, and coming together. Um, so I think the three pieces together are a wonderful uh, expression of what American music is, which is a kaleidoscope. ISO uh, through the course of the last 30 years growing and expanding and improving upon their artistic identities this really um, encapsulates kind of you know what that is about so it's, it's a great uh, program of choice um, Michael Torkey also a very virtuosic piece that really um, showcases once again what the, the facilities of what the orchestra is able to do Both of you have been abroad in a time when people had a lot of questions about this country. You know, sometimes when you go abroad, you want to assimilate with that culture and be as 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 little American as possible. Like, I will never wear Nikes and a fanny pack while I'm in Europe, you know. Or do you lean in to your own personal cultural backgrounds and represent that in some way? I think me personally, having lived in before going to Europe, uh, being both in Korea and in, in America, right. and not really feeling uh, like I belonged anywhere in either of those, here or there, um, no matter how much time passed. Hmm. And then when I was in Europe, I think the experience, yeah, especially during these times that, um, I mean, Switzerland, it, it, it's, everybody also speaks English, so that uh, I think you you'd also do see a lot of um, multicultural people just in the country in and of itself, so I never really had this pressure to to behave one way or the other. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I think for me it was just about me and myself and assimilating into a new world and, and yeah, mm. creating that bond. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I find 
I guess I had an experience that a lot of expats have, which is that looking back onto their home country, they get actually a much clearer picture of it. I mean, James Joyce talks about when he, he left Ireland and he wrote Dubliners as a, a way he wanted to hold up a polished looking glass to his home country. And it was interesting. I actually found myself much, um, much more eager to defend mm. <laughs> the United States in conversations that I was having in Austria than I might have been before. And I think I gained a new appreciation for the parts of the American spirit and the American culture, which of course is so hard to sum up mm. in one thing because the, the essence of it is multiplicity and pl- Pluralism, right? right? Just as in the music. But there is a certain energy, a certain dynamism, a certain tempo, I think that's a little bit characteristic of America and Americans, which Europeans can find a little bit grating, <laughs> um, <laughs> but which I, I find when it is authentic and genuine is very refreshing. And that sort of exuberance being allowed to just flow freely, which is also a very American thing. Um, And I think you really hear that in all of the music. How is one to approach Bartok? Mm-hmm. Boy, a difficult question. Uh, there are so many different layers in which you can enjoy and appreciate Bartok. Um, from on one side of the spectrum, the hyper-analytical, to on the other side of the spectrum, the completely intuitive and experiential. Um, the amazing thing about this piece for me is that it fluctuates. Bartok is so obsessed with patterns, mm-hmm. right? Um, but he's constantly establishing little bits of pattern which are then broken somehow. And then um, I think, particularly in this piece, more so than in other Bartok works, there is a real undercurrent of narrative. So I would say just sit back and and let the textures and the and the magic of it in the story just pass through you. love to transition and um, you know talk about Joshua Roman behind his back <laughs> uh, he will be visiting to play the Dvorak cello concerto So much of his journey over the last two, three years has been informed by experiencing COVID and and long COVID. And something that uh, Joshua said in a in an interview was that he has 
had to become more careful about the things he says yes to and more intentional about the the choices he makes as a musician the preparation to you know to play for 40 minutes of what that might do to his body as he recovers um from this illness you don't have to speak for him personally but talk about the significance of this cello concerto in particular in the the kind of canon of of cello and i know you can certainly speak mm. to that jake um and why he might say yes to this <laughs> <laughs> well i guess from the cellist perspective yeah uh, the Dvorak Concerto is, of course, the Mount Olympus, the, the summit of our repertoire. It's our crown jewel. And it's something that growing up as a cellist, you wait and you wait and you wait until the right moment. But it is just, once you get there, um, what a cornucopia it is. The second and third moon movement relates to the death of Dvorak's uh, first uh, love interest, Josefina. You know, of course, the story where he married, ended up marrying his sister, but then always uh, had this love for uh, uh, Josefina. And then this concerto being written um, around the time of her death also. I always correlate uh, the, the final send-off in the third movement being like the spiritual send-off of the soul rising up to heaven. And as artists being able to project something that's un indescribable or, you know, in, in during this experience of 40 minutes is difficult to do and can certainly understand maybe Josh also having this renewed perspective, maybe going after, going through long COVID perhaps. I'm very interested to uh, hear what he brings to Dvorak Cello Concerto. Yeah. yeah. I would just throw in there is this very strange epidemic of great artists falling in love with women and <laughs> ending up marrying their sisters. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Leonardo it's, da Vinci, yeah. Friedrich Schiller, yeah. Um, Mozart, yeah. and also Dvorak. That'll be the next ISO program, Scintillating Scint Sisters. <laughs> that's right, yes, that's right. Scintillating SS. Andrew June Choi and Jacobson Woolen speaking with WGLT's Lauren Warnicke. The Illinois Symphony plays epic ending tomorrow at the ISU Center for the Performing Arts. The symphony anticipates announcing its 2023-24 season in mid-May, including four candidates vying for the top job as music director after Ken Lamb's departure one year ago. Support for arts and culture programming on WGLT comes from PNC Financial Services. We're focusing on giving back as part of an ongoing commitment to the community PNC serves. And that is Sound Ideas today. WGLT's news magazine is made possible in part by Bloomington Normal Audiology. I'm John Norton. Story help today came from WGLT's Charlie Schlenker, also Ryan Denham and Lauren Warnicke. Samantha Hill produced Sound Ideas today. You're listening to 89.1 FM, WGLT and WGLT Dot org, Bloomington Normal's public media, part of the NPR network.